0: who are watching on Facebook Live. Hopefully we did it right so you can hear us. If not, I apologize. It was working a little while ago. Um, So, yeah. Cool. All right. This is by far one of the oddest Sundays I think I've ever experienced in my entire life. Um, Not that it's been that long, but... um, As most of you know, we're about to start something really kind of cool here at our church. We're about to begin what we call intergenerational ministry. It's where middle school, high school, college, and young adult all worship together as one body. Um, and that's never been done at our church, and it really isn't done a whole lot across the United States. And so um, as we begin this, and last week we, I dared you to dream big, to dream bigger than what you're normally used to. Um, And as we kind of begin on this journey, I know uh, today was supposed to be a place where this place was packed full of a lot of people, um, and it's not. But as we begin this and we continue to do this, I thought of um, that there was two really critical things that we needed to understand if we're actually going to make this work. Because there's a lot of people who, if they're being honest, think that this isn't going to work all that well. And we talked about a lot of those things last week. They think, you know, middle school is not this, or high school is not this, or our young adult college people, they're not this. And so the two things that I think we need to really think about and this is what I challenged RK with when we began RK about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, um, are as follows. First, is what does it mean to actually follow Jesus and live the life that he promises, right? Not just like a little bit, but like to its full, right? There's a life that Jesus says we can have, and how and what does it mean to follow Jesus and actually live that life, right? And then secondly, what does it mean what does it mean to live this life in community? I realize I didn't do this. I apologize. My mic is moving all over the place. It's annoying. Hopefully that didn't fix it. Sorry. All right, there we go. What does it mean to live this life in community, right? What is the boundaries of our Christian community? And I think today, if anything, this morning, I thought Christian community and our community meant this, and I feel like God is stretching it, interestingly enough, uh, this morning to Encompass so much more than I think what we thought of. What does it mean to love God and love others? What does it mean to live as an actual community, actual group of people, like an actual family, right, living this life? And so I feel like what's happening amongst us is that God is writing this story for us. God is doing this thing, um, and I feel like we're, as we're following and understanding what God is doing, that we want to understand how God wants us to move. And so I feel like as we focus on these two things, what does it mean to actually live the life God promised, what does that look like for us as a church, and what does it mean to live, life, live this life in community, one of the things that I feel like we needed to understand is a core truth, and maybe a core command, or a core thing that I think we hopefully will continue to remind ourselves, and a priority that we have in order to go forward. And let me tell you, it's not a list of do's and don'ts, and I know a lot of times Christianity has been about a list of do's and don'ts, do this, do this, do this don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, but I don't think it's that. I think we want to go much deeper and kind of allow these two words that we're going to continually see again and again and again to kind of like penetrate, just kind of impact our lives. Two words, two commands, or two actions, and they're very simple, invite and obey. That to follow Jesus, the two things that we need to be doing is to invite and to obey, that that's the posture that we want to live in. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 2. Uh, we'll read this together. Um, and again, as I said, in the, in the weeks to come, we'll have other people read it other than me, uh, but for now, we'll have uh, me read it. John chapter 2, um, and after service, say hello and, and thank Mr. Jim back there, because he's working like a madman, um, trying to get everything going, and so the picture's a little blurry, but it'll be all right. We'll, we'll, as long as you can hear it, will be fine. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Okay, John chapter 2, and as always, the words will be on the screen uh, if you do not have your Bibles. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. But when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine. And so Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. So Jesus' mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six water pots set there for Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots. He says to the servants, fill the water pots with water. And so the servants, they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. So when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to the bridegroom, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This The beginning of his sign Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now let me give you a bit of context and background as to what's going on. John is one of my favorite books because it's uh, this book that's described as a book so accessible that anyone can read it and be blessed by it, but a book that's so deep that most people, the most accomplished theologians, will always find new depths in it. So basically, John is one of my favorite books because anybody can read it. My kids, though they're four or two, four, and six, they can read it and be blessed by it. But it says the most accomplished theologian, whoever you think that is, even senior pastor who's been doing this for almost 40 or so years, he can read this book and still find things that he did not know every single time he opens. And so in John, what what John is doing, he's painting this picture of Jesus that maybe a lot of us haven't seen yet details that maybe we haven't noticed, things that are so com- simple but yet complex all at the same time. And one of the things that he does in this book that's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three, go- other three Gospels, is he has, a, he has a, a list of signs, these seven signs that he points at, and he says that these signs are the things that you should know to know that indeed Jesus is God, the, and Jesus is the Son of God, and then he will have life in him. So he kind of has these seven signs, and the seven signs aren't all found in the other gospels, but here are the seven signs really quickly, and you don't have to remember them, just know that there are seven. The first one is this one changing water into wine in John 2. The second one is healing of the royal official sons in Capernaum in John 4. Then there's the healing of the paralytic, the person who can't move at Bethesda in John 5. Then Jesus feeds the 5,000. You've heard that story a bunch of times in John 6. Jesus walks on water, also later in John 6. And then he heals the man who was born blind in John 9. And the last of the seven miracles is him raising Lazarus, who had been dead and buried in the tomb for four days. He raises him from the dead. So today we want to focus on the first. Jesus is at a wedding. And then he turns water into wine. But I think... And from my studies, it seems to me that this sign, when Jesus turns water into wine, is the most glorious and the greatest of all seven signs. Maybe, if not the most glorious of all of his miracles that you've ever read about. And I think in it is the key to how we might actually do what we're trying to do. How you and I might actually become the church that I think God wants us to become. So, I want to focus, though, on verse 11. Because we're going to kind of come back to this again and again. It says this. This the beginning of his signs, Jesus did in the Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John says that when Jesus turns water into wine, it manifests. If you know what do you know what that means? To manifest means to like reveal, to show, to display. That when Jesus turns water into wine, this manifested God's glory. Interestingly, none of the other seven signs suggest that those seven signs explicitly. Manifest or reveal God's glory. Only this one. Okay? And earlier in chapter 1, in the intro to the entire book, John talks about Jesus being the Word, right, and how the Word came down and took on flesh and did all these things. And he says that through Jesus moving into our neighborhood, essentially pitching a tent, making a home, and then taking on flesh, that that also manifested God's glory. And then at the end, in John 17, or at least near the end, When Jesus is about to go to the cross, he says, The time has now come. God, or the Father, glorify your Son so that I may glorify you. So John suggests, interestingly, that when Jesus becomes a human being, that's Jesus' glory. Understandable. When Jesus goes to the cross, that that's also Jesus' glory. Okay, maybe understandable. But he also says, interestingly, the third point, or the third thing that actually reveals, explicitly reveals his glory is this, water into wine at Cana. And if you don't know what God's glory is, my professor says to see God's glory is to see the essence of what it makes God be God. So glory in many ways is the very core of who you are, why you are the way that you are. It's to say the glory of Pastor Goose is Goose, Pastor Goose, at his core. The essence, the very being, the thing that makes Pastor Goose, Pastor Goose is his glory. And John says that we saw God's glory, or Jesus' glory, when he became a human being, when he died on a cross, and then very interestingly, when he turns water into wine. So to see Jesus turn water into wine means that we can see in this the very thing that makes God, God. The thing that makes him who we think he is. Now, there's a lot going on here, but there's a few a couple of things that I want to notice before we kind of uh, dive deeper. What this shows me is that the glory of Jesus, that what makes God God, is that he's one that loves to celebrate. And I love that about Jesus. I don't know about you. Everyone, at least when I grew up, uh, Jesus, everyone thought, everyone made Jesus out to be like this party pooper. Like, you know, you can't do anything fun. You can't ever have, you know, anything interesting or, you know, in, in any way, Right? But Jesus loves to party. He loves to go to weddings. He loves to celebrate. And he loves to provide the things that help people celebrate. The second, I love that the glory of Jesus, what makes Jesus Jesus is really sensible. The only reason he turns water into wine is because people, they run out of wine and they're like, "Um, we ran out of wine. And his mom's like, yo, Jesus, they ran out of wine. Can you do something? And then first he's like, yo, what are you doing? But he responds. Jesus isn't going to always just leave you He's very sensible about the way that he's doing it. He's not some sort of aloof God. The third thing that I find out here about God's glory, Jesus' glory, is that he loves abundance. He loves a lot. Jesus isn't a God of, like, just enough. He's a God of abundance. Notice how he, did you notice how much wine he makes? So if you don't know anything about the weddings back then, they're, like, weeks long, right? And so they ran out of wine, let's say, in the middle of the week, like on a Wednesday, let's just say, and the party's got to go until Sunday. He doesn't make just a little bit of wine. He makes 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. So Jesus isn't interested in just enough. He's interested in abundance, this delicious, overabundant life. But at the heart of everything is the fact that Jesus turns 120 gallons or so, or 180 gallons, depending on whatever it is, water into wine that that is maybe one of the most glorious things you can see about Jesus ever. Now, you might be saying, Pastor, like, I mean, I get it. Turning water into wine, that's pretty cool. I wish I could do that maybe, or maybe you want to turn water into Pepsi or I don't know whatever your favorite drink is, Gatorade or Mountain Dew, or I don't know what your favorite drink is. Um, You guys have probably a higher taste than that, but you're probably like, I don't really see why this is really all that glorious. So let's dig deeper to find out, because I think indeed it is. So verse 11 again, it says, notice how in verse 11, John says, this is the beginning. The Greek word for beginning is the Greek word arche. It's how we named our college and young adult ministry. It's the word where we get the word archetype or the word architecture, right? So arche means the beginning of a series, right? The beginning of a pattern of things or the first of the many same things type to come. The archetype to me is what we call the OG, the original, the OEM part. It's not a manufactured, refurbished thing. It is the original. And so to say that means that water into wine, when Jesus says it, it is the sign, the picture of everything that will put Jesus' life into focus. This is why I think this miracle is the greatest of the seven that he performs in the thing. And you might be like, okay, pastor, cool. I'm kind of following you, but still, I'm not really convinced that this is indeed the greatest thing. Well, did you know that no matter what you do to water, it will never, ever, ever turn into wine? For all of you chemistry nerds out there, water is what? H2O. No matter what you do to two hydrogen atoms, right, and one oxygen atom, whoo, almost made a mistake there, no matter what you do to those things, it will not chemically become anything that resembles wine. There is no alcohol in water, and no, you can't do anything to make alcohol. There's no fermentation. There's nothing that will give you the flavor of wine, nothing that the grapes, you need grapes and things like that. Water in and of itself does not contain the ingredients to make wine. So therefore, when Jesus turns water into wine, he's taking something that has none of the ingredients to become the very thing that he turns it into, Jesus turning something totally new from something that wasn't there at all. And now you might be still saying, okay, pastor, cool, like you're getting on this like thing and I know you get really hyped about things, you like to talk really fast and talk really loud about these things, but still, you're not really convincing me because the other things are more miraculous than this. Jesus raising a dead man back to life is more miraculous and cooler than when he turns a bunch of water into wine. And you might have a point, but I think you're wrong. Why? Here's Why? When Jesus heals the blind man, Jesus is doing something that's really awesome, but he's really only fixing that which is broken. Notice how any of in Jesus' miracles, notice he doesn't do this. He doesn't be like, oh, you know what? Daniel's missing a leg. Let me regrow the leg. He doesn't do that. He doesn't ever, like, regenerate stuff. Not that he can't, but he doesn't, right? He doesn't make something appear out of nowhere. Healing the blind man, he's literally taking eyes that are broken and then fixing them so they work again. The multiplying the bread and the fish, he takes the bread and the fish that's already there and then he somehow magically or miraculously, whatever word you want to use, he somehow makes them grow faster or reproduce faster or the yeast and the flour and the whatever to do the thing faster. But he's not taking nothing and then making something new. He's not changing the chemicals. You still have bread and you still have fish. You just have a lot more of it. Even raising from the dead, he takes a dead man. But inside the dead man is all the things you need for a man, right? And then he just brings it back to life. Life that was once there that no longer was is now fixed to bring it back. But water into wine is totally different. Yes, they're both liquids, but that's about where the comparison ends. Or the similarities, I should say. It's like Transformers. Transformers is transformation. It's taking something that's this and then reforming it into this. Optimus Prime is still Optimus Prime, whether he's a truck or a robot. He doesn't change. He just kind of changes his shape. It's like water maybe being gas or ice, but there's no actual anything chemically going on. It's just the same thing in a different form. But water into wine is a fancy term we call transubstantiation, which is a fancy term to say you change the very substance of the thing itself. The chemical makeup, not just the structure, not the way that it's rearranged, but the actual chemical substance, the inner workings, it's totally new. Now let's keep digging, okay? Notice how Jesus says, he says, my hour has not yet come. When his imam goes, hey, yo, Jesus, can you fix the situation? And remember, earlier I just said that this water into wine is the archetype, the OG, right? The original, the many of things to come just like it down the line. So when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he's suggesting then that when the hour comes, whatever the hour is, That whatever we saw here, water into wine, we will see again in some sort of shape and form. That whatever happens when he says, my hour has now come, must resemble, must be like the archetype, which is the water into wine. Are you following? And when do you see Jesus say the hour again? You don't see it until chapter 17. When Jesus declares to his Father, he says, Father, the hour has now come. And what is the hour? Anybody know? It's the cross. It's the hour of the cross. But let's, let's keep digging. What are the first four, five words, four words of the, of the passage? Anybody know? What are the first four words of the passage that we just read today? It's not a true question. <laughs> which means if you're looking at me, not at Jehovah, you're not going to get the answer. <laughs> What's the first four words of John chapter 2? On the third day, Joseph, where else do you hear or read on the third day in John or in Scripture? It's, again, not a trick question. When Jesus resurrects from the dead. So the connections that John is making is that the water into wine is something like the cross and something like the resurrection when Jesus rises from the dead. Now you might be saying, Pastor, now you're contradicting yourself because you just told me that water into wine is cooler or better than when Jesus raises a dead man back to life. Now you're contradicting yourself. But am I? Again, another Bible history lesson for all you nerds. What happens when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? How does a scene happen? Does anyone remember? So he's been lying there for a bunch of days, and then he goes, Lazarus, get up and get out. How does, what happens next? Does anyone know? Chris is looking at me like, I should know. Anyone know? Huh? It's in John 11. He comes out what? So he comes out looking like a mummy, essentially. Because when they bury people back, then they wrap them up with a bunch of clothes, right? Like a bunch of like <laughs> linens, and then he comes out. So it's kind of like a freaky scene probably, but when he says, Lazarus, get up and come out, Lazarus walks out, and he's got all the, the coverings all over him. And so Jesus goes, hey, take that off. So people have to go and peel off the wrappings. You follow? But do you know what happens when Jesus rises from the dead? How does that scene happen? Chris? What? There's only one over there for all the people on Facebook Live. What happens when Jesus rises from the dead? What's the scene like? like, like Oh, whoa, it's like that? Okay. Anybody else know? What What do the disciples find when they go to the grave? It's empty, but it's not actually empty. What's in the grave? His grave clothes. So somehow when Lazarus rises from the dead, he can't take off the grave clothes. But when Jesus rises from the dead, the grave clothes, he takes them off, and because Jesus is boss and OG, he takes them off, he folds them up real nice, he places them on the side, and then he walks out somehow, past the guards, past the 1,000-pound stone, and all that stuff. The difference, though you might say it's small or minor, is that Lazarus was resuscitated. Who know what that means? Literally, you put air back into something that wasn't there. Lazarus was resuscitated, but Jesus was resurrected. Now you may be saying, Pastor, you're doing this again. You love to do this. You love to make technicalities, use fancy terms and confuse everyone, but they're not the technicality. The difference is that resuscitation is returning something to the way that it was. What was once alive is now dead and then back to life. Resurrection is not that. You know why? Because you know what happened to Lazarus again? He dies. He dies. Jesus never dies again. Resuscitation is just going back to what it was. But resurrection is totally something new. When you and I resurrect, when Jesus resurrects, he has no—he no, literally, literally no interest in going back to the grave. He's done and over with that. He's going to go straight to the seat next to his father, in heaven. Resurrection is something totally new. It is water becoming wine. It is chemically something totally different. When you resurrect, you are no longer able to die ever again. But when you're resuscitated like Lazarus was, Jairus's daughter, or whoever else, the three of you who come back to life from the dead, they will die again. But when you resurrect, you will never, ever die again. Water is now wine. Death no more. Are you seeing why this is the key for us to become the church that God wants us to become? For you and I to be the Christians that God wants us to be? Jesus is saying you need to understand that through him, through the God who can take water and make it into wine, that you indeed can live a life where you are no longer afraid of death because you will die once maybe, but you will resurrect and die never again. And even more, he's saying you do not have to have the ingredients. You're water. You're bland. You're two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. You don't have alcohol, and you don't have fermentation, and you don't have flavor in you. Not yet. But when Jesus gets his hands on you, you will resurrect, and you will never, ever be the same. And you won't be just some dinky old wine, tasteless, cheap, flat wine. You will be the most delicious wine the world has ever Tasted water into wine. Which means that though we're going to take 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds, join them with 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds, join them with 19, all the way up to 28 or 29, I believe, year olds, and everybody outside of our church and maybe even inside of our church will look at you and say, That's not possible. It's not going to work. You're never going to get them to jail. You're never going to get them to bond. You're never going to actually get them to care about each other. And what I will tell them is if Jesus is the water into wine God, the God who resurrects from the dead so that we don't have to ever die anymore, then he for sure, I believe, can make us, though we don't have anything in us right now that will get us to come together, he can make us into that delicious wine, the community that is as most delicious the world has ever Yeah, junior high kids, you may not be as mature as everybody wants you to be. Maybe. Yes, high school, you're not as selfless or as giving as maybe you ought to be. Yes, RK, you're our young adults. You may, you, not, you, may not be have, you may not be the leaders or be loving and as patient as we need you to be. But make no mistake, Jesus says you and I do not have to have the ingredients for me to make you what I want make you. But the question is, do you and I believe it? Can we become the community that changes not only this church, but changes our city and changes the world? I have no idea how the other service had their service today. I can probably ask my parents. They're actually sitting right over there. Don't look. It's embarrassing. But I wonder I wonder if we, if they, prayed for the homeless of our city because we are concerned that they don't have a home. I wonder if the churches across our city prayed for all the people who do not have homes today, who thought outside of just our own little circle. And I wonder how many of our young people in our city who gathered at churches today prayed for the people who are hurting this morning because our God is a God who loves all. So now the question remains, how do we do this? How do we go from water into wine? How do we allow Jesus to turn us from water into wine? And that, the answer is simple. It's the two tag words of the day, invite and obey. First, you have to invite Jesus. Why was Jesus at the wedding? It's a very simple answer. He got invited. Which means that if he wasn't invited, guess what? Jesus ain't showing up to the wedding. And if Jesus doesn't show up to the wedding, guess what? They would have run out of wine, and that party, that wedding party, the bride and the groom, would have been short. And they would have been the embarrassment of the entire city. It's very embarrassing, apparently, back in those days, to run out of wine. It's like me having a wedding, or it's like you maybe one day getting married, and you, have, you invite everybody, and you want to feed them all, right? And you run out of food, like a third of the way. So everyone else is in line, you go, oh, I'm sorry, we have no more food left. And everyone's like, yeah, what is this? It's really embarrassing. You don't, Trust me, you do not want that look if you get married. Hopefully, you all will. But that's what it's like. But Jesus comes to the rescue. But if he's not invited, he's not coming. And if he's not there, there ain't nobody else in the city or in the world at that point in time that can turn water into wine. So are you, are we, going to invite Jesus into any and every situation? The parties, yes, we invite him, Celebrate. We're going to be celebrating my ordination. I have no idea who's going to show up, but I guarantee you, I invited Jesus to the party today. He's the guest of honor. But the messy situations, like this morning, did you invite Jesus into the messy situation this morning? I told you, my parents are in town. They ain't fluent from Virginia. This thing is supposed to be a big deal tonight or this afternoon. I got Pastor Sean from a different church out here. He's doing something at the service too. It's a big deal. We want it to be fun. We want it to be a big deal. Yes, we get that. But the entire weekend, I felt like my w- heart was at war with itself. Do I go? Do I put myself at risk? Do I keep myself safe? And let me tell you, safety first. Don't do anything stupid. But even last yesterday morning, I got up, and the first thought I was, man this, is, man, this rain is crazy. It's been raining all night long. I barely got any sleep. Do I really go to morning prayer? I got some meetings to go to. And the first thing I thought of, Jesus said, Remember. You're going to preach and tell your people to invite and obey, and you have not yet invited me into the situation. So I did. And Jesus said, you know what he said to me in the morning? He goes, people are going to get up this morning, and they're going to show up to their jobs at Cracker Barrel, at IHOP, at Denny's, and all these places. If you can make it, you should go. So I said, yes, sir. I got up, and I went. How often do we leave him out of the situations when she needed him the most? Even this morning, I tried to make it out. And I tried to get to first service because I wanted to be here. But then immediately, as I'm going, I realized a lot of the roads were flooded. So in that moment, I just said, Jesus, what do you you want me to do? And then immediately in that moment, I thought of my parents. They were stuck at a hotel. Well, they weren't stuck yet, but they might have been stuck at a hotel. So I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to go pick them up. I'm going to bring them home with me to our place so we can go to church together later. Because this day is very meaningless if my parents aren't there. So I went, and I picked them up. And I didn't get to show up to first service today. But I wasn't afraid. I wasn't ashamed. I did what I had to do. But then we were all at my house. We all got ready, and then we all came together. All eight of us packed into our minivan, driving through the kind of the floody waters. But how often do we not invite him into the situations of our life, good and bad? How often do we try to do everything on our own without asking what Jesus would have us do? So are we going to be the people who invite him, as we did this morning, by praying on our own, yes, but also together? Are we going to be the people who invite him into our situations by being sharing and being vulnerable with one another, saying, you know what, my life is difficult, I have good and bad points, I know your life has good and bad points, that we can share together. Are we going to invite him and say, Jesus, you are the God who brings people together. Will you bring us together? Are we going to invite Jesus in by creating space for him, not only on Sundays, but the other days of the week, that's one of your biggest issues right now. In high school, you're very busy. You've got a lot of work to do. Your parents have given you a lot of stress. You've got A, B, C, D, all the way down to Z to do. But where in that A to Z list does Jesus fit? Where are you making space for him to be a part of your life? You can't be upset at Jesus for not being a part of your life when you don't give him the time to be a part of it. Jesus will always show up to the places you invite him in. And whatever he touches, he transubstantiates from water into wine. But if you do not invite him, he will not come. Because as we said before, for him to force himself upon you is not love. It is something totally different. Can we be a people, a church, that are continuously inviting Jesus in to every and any situation? And as you invite, then, Jesus in, then the thing you have to do is, secondly, obey. Notice what Jesus' mom says to the servant. She's kind of crazy. She kind of reminds me of my dad. Because my dad does these things sometimes. He just says crazy things sometimes and he just expects me to do it and most of the time he's right. But she goes to them and she goes, hey, servants, this is my son. His name is Jesus. Do whatever he tells you to do. It's a kind of a crappy command. And then Jesus looks at him, knowing that the, water, the wine has about to run out. And then there's these purification jars, and I won't even get into what that is all about. It's where you're supposed to wash your hands and become more pure. So Jesus is kind of breaking rules. You're not supposed to do the thing that he does. But then he looks at the servants who don't know him. They don't know about him really, not yet. And he looks at them and he goes, yo, fill up those pots with water. Now again, the servants aren't stupid. They know what's going on. They know that they need wine. Unless you're different than me, uh, than them, and than me, then they know. No matter how much water you fill in these pots, it ain't gonna get you wine. It's gonna give you water. But what do they do? They just do it. They may be stupid. I don't know what. I, mean, I don't know what's going on. But they just trust Jesus, and they do it. And then he tells them, "Now that you filled it to the brim." take a ladle or whatever, and then take a little bit and go take it to the headmaster, the head waiter, the person, the MC, right? The person who's running the show. And again, if if I'm then, I'm be like, okay, I mean, I I filled the water up, cool, but now you're about to make me look like a fool, because you're about to tell, tell me to take a cup of water, give it to the head waitress, and think that it's supposed to be wine? See, now their reputation is on the line, but what do they do? They do it. Why? I don't know. But they do. They do, perhaps, the most nonsensical thing. And I thought about it. They could have gotten fired. Oh, here you go. Some wine. He drinks it. He goes, this is water. What the? Get out. But they do it. And what happens? It's the most delicious wine the guy has tasted in a long time maybe we're like this maybe you invited jesus to the party maybe you invited Jesus to the situation that you're in but how oftentimes you feel maybe a tug something that you feel like he's telling you to do and you simply do not listen you say nah jesus i'm good nah not this time nah i ain't ready for that yet nah i'm gonna look like a fool no that's stupid that don't make no sense jesus Do we question? Do we resist? Do we debate with him? Or do we do what he tells us to do? It's an old school movie, but you have you seen the movie Karate Kid? If you haven't, go watch it. It's super grainy. It's really weird. But this kid wants to learn karate from this guy from sensei. And as he begins, he's like, "Yeah, I'll teach you." And what he does for literally weeks is he just does household chores. He tells him, wax my car. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Daniel-san is pissed off. Bro, teach me karate. I need to beat up this guy and win my girl. And you're teaching, you're making me wax your freaking car. And He's like, okay, you're done with that. Next next project. Okay, so he's like, okay, now I'm gonna actually learn karate. And he goes, paint my fence. Up, down. Up, down. Left hand, up. All these menial, stupid tasks that Daniel-san thinks is doing nothing, but in the end, what ends up doing, and he gets really pissed off, and he gets really angry, and then he finally goes at the guy, and he goes, yo, Master Miyagi, what the, you know, what, why are you, now you're, just, you're, you're making me like a servant. What's going on? And then he goes, do you know how to wax on? I say, yeah, I know how to wax on. Do you know how to up and down? Yeah, I know how to do all these things. And then so, Mr. Miyagi starts to attack him, and as he does, he says the word, wax on, and he just, boom, and then he blocks it. Wax off, boom, and he blocks it. And then he punches it, and he goes, fence up, boom, fence up, down. And the, the whole thing, he learned karate, even though he didn't think he was learning karate. But if he hadn't listened to Mr. Miyagi, he would not have learned. are we willing to do what Jesus teaches us and tells us to do? It may sound stupid. It may sound nonsensical. It may sound like you're going to get embarrassed, but are we doing what Jesus tells us to do? As you know, Jesus saves the wedding. He restores the reputation of the family. He shows who he is. But it all happens... Because the lowly servants simply just did what Jesus told them to do. There's nothing fancy going on. Fill up the water pots, yes. Give this to the head waiter, yes. And Jesus, through their actions, though small and minuscule and minute, he saves the wedding. So are we willing to invite Jesus into every party, into every deficit, into every messy situation? And as we invite Jesus, are we going to do what he tells us to do? Or are we too busy telling him what we think is best? And as we invite Jesus into every situation, are we going to experience Jesus turning water into wine? It's the thing that Pastor Goose and I have been struggling with or thinking through and praying through this entire time. Are we going to invite Jesus into this situation which may not always be great, which may have its ups and downs, and are we willing to do as he tells us to do? And in your Christian lives, are you going to do so? Because I don't think it's about all the things that we maybe made it about. You read the Bible because Jesus says it's where you find him. You pray because it's the way that he says you communicate with him, not because it's the thing to do. So friends, if you're on Facebook Live, wherever it is that we're at, can we be a community and a people that invites Jesus into everything, The good, the bad, and the ugly. And can we do the thing that he tells us to do? Can we ask him, Lord, Jesus, what would you have me do? How would you have me react? As you know, a bunch of us, and I finish here, went to Haiti this past summer. And the thing that I think I love the most about our trip was that I think the vast majority of our guys, and some of them are sitting right here, they'll tell you there are moments on the trip where very simply they felt like a little tug on their heart, like Jesus saying to them, Yo, do this. And they responded and asked them, Go listen to the testimonies again. Ask them, What did Jesus do when you obeyed? And he did some pretty cool things. They invited and then they obeyed. And if we invite and we obey, guaranteed because Jesus is the water into wine God. Though we have nothing in and of ourselves that will get us to be the community and the kind of church and the kind of people that we want to be, he will make us those things because he's the one who's going to do it from the beginning anyway. Even in this situation this weekend, I pray that we'd be a community that invites Jesus into our lives, into the situation and obeys what he tells us to do. That no matter how silly or stupid or nonsensical, counterintuitive, embarrassing it may sound, that because he's Jesus and he's proven himself to be a God who resurrects from the dead and wants the same for us, that we will follow him and obey him. So, again, I want to finish up tonight or this afternoon and just pray. Because I believe your prayers are powerful. And when you're praying for your parents, you're praying for your friends, you're praying for our city, that does something. And that you can be challenged and stretched to pray way beyond the realms of God, help me to do well on this test, or help me to do this. Or, but that we can reach out and our prayers can go way beyond and pray for our city. So will you join me in praying? Will you invite Jesus into our situation? Our, hurt, our city is hurting right now. Harvey has done a number, not only on us, but on a lot of other people. Can we invite Jesus into our lives, into these situations, into all the homes that are around in our our city and beyond and ask him to do what he needs to do? And as we pray, um, I'm just going to ask Pastor Goose to, to come up and just lead us out. We'll just do a simple acoustic set at the end. But let's pray together. Let's be a community that indeed does, young and old together. So invite Jesus. Say, Jesus, will you come into this place? Come into my heart. Come into our lives we need you to be here because we need you in this time. We're not bigger than these floodwaters, but indeed you are. And then ask him, Lord, what would you have us do? What would you have me do? And maybe the thing he's asking you to do is to pray. That when you get home today, that the thing you'll do is you'll pray. You'll take time every hour or so, and you just pray and lift up a very short and small prayer, whatever it is that you're moved to do. But say, Jesus, we need you in our city. The people need you in this place. And then you'll pray. Maybe he's calling you and he'll say, you know what, reach out to your friends. Tell them, yeah, this situation is hard. But I'm here with you. Maybe Jesus will tell you to huddle with your family and say, mom, dad, brothers and sisters, let's gather together and let's pray. Let's pray for our church, let's pray for our city. And I pray you would have the courage to follow whatever Jesus tells you to do. Because again, you are not the wine. He's the one that takes you the water and makes you into wine. So let's pray together and then we'll finish our worship. Father, would you, oh, in this place, Jesus, would you be here with us?